You're listening to the Deep Purple Podcast, a fan podcast about one of the most legendary bands of all time, Deep Purple. We take a look at the music, history, and people behind the band Deep Purple and beyond. Welcome to the Deep Purple Podcast. I'm your host, Nathan Beaudry, and with me today, I have my good friend and co-host, John Matola. How are you doing, John? Hola. If you want to keep up to date on the show, you can subscribe on Apple Podcasts or your preferred podcatcher. You can also subscribe on YouTube or on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. And then also you can check our website, deeppurplepodcast.com. So if you like what you hear and you want to support the show, you can become a patron on Patreon. And also you can leave us a rating on Apple Podcasts that lets new people discover the show. And it came out this week, I guess, that they're getting rid of Apple Podcasts podcasts or, or iTunes, I guess they're getting rid of. And they're going to split it into like a few different, I guess they're going to split it into music, podcasts, and I think there's one other, or apps, I guess. So, and iTunes is going to go away. Oh, so, I didn't know that. I don't know what that means. I hate iTunes, like the music player iTunes, so I'll be happy to see that go away, but. Yeah, I haven't used it in years myself, so. I use it like just kind of to sync my phone and everything with stuff, because I there's not really any other option with an iPhone. Well, unless you, you just use like Spotify, right? Yeah. So, yeah. So I guess it doesn't yeah, matter. Primarily, that. that's that's what I use anymore. Well, that's funny because, you know, growing up, you were the one that was like, ah, oh, I don't, oh, I've got too many cassettes. I'm not getting CDs. And I like was ahead of the curve. And now like I'm listening to not CD, like I'm listening to all my CDs that I ripped onto my computer. <laughs> um, and when I moved to New York, I had like 2,000 CDs or something. And leading up to there, just like every day, I'd rip like 20 more CDs and just throw them on my computer. So when I moved to New York, I went completely CD-free. Now it would have been like 2004. Yeah. And uh, I've just been listening to that ever since. And then now you've leapfrogged me into the streaming <laughs> services world. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm well aware that um, I guess to a more... Um, discerning ear than mine. Uh, the sound quality is uh, terrible uh, by most audiophiles' accounts. Uh, but I, for my money, I don't notice the difference, and I prefer the convenience. And I'm, I'm just not. I guess I just don't care enough. I'm not like focused enough on that that kind of audio yet. So it works for me. Audio, audio files i mean that's such a bunch of garbage anyway like i have no problem like i i ripped all my cds back at like 160 kbps mm -hmm. because like at the time it was like oh i might not have enough hard drive space now <laughs> it's like not a factor <laughs> um even with like i think i have enough music on my you know it says at the bottom of itunes it's like you know uh you know, 895 days, you know, it'll say at the bottom, like how much you could, how long you could listen to it before it starts back up to the top. So, uh, you know, it doesn't even matter, but like, that's like, nobody can tell, especially the way that we're listening to this stuff. If you had a $7,000 stereo system, maybe you'd be able to detect like a small variance in quality, but you're listening to it on your phone, on your, in your car and your headphones, like you're not going to be able to tell. Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm not part of the one percent that has a seven thousand dollars stereo, so uh, <laughs> well, I'm I'm fine with it. Who has a stereo anymore, anyway? Like, are you going like a component stereo that you're like, you're? Oh God, I don't know. 
Like, I don't even, like, when somebody gives me a CD, I'm like, what the heck am I going to do with this? I had to buy, like, I don't even put CD players in my computer anymore. I I buy, like, the, I bought, like, a little USB CD uh, player so I can just plug that in and rip something in the rare case I get a CD or a DVD. Yeah. Yeah, I get you. But anyway, enough of that. That was old man grumpy talk with John and Nate. <laughs> Uh, so this week we've had a few, um, really good updates for the show and some stuff I'd like to share with you. And right now we've got, let's see if I can find this here. I'm getting, getting used to my, uh, here we go. Getting used to my screen thing here. It's been a week. Got a comment on YouTube. Said, I thought about suggesting you do a comparison of The Bird Has Flown with Evan Simper versus the Gillen Glover version of Bird Has Flown. So the version with Gillen Glover is on Spotify, BBC Session 68 to 70. Says, I like both versions. Was actually unsure if Gillen or Evan's first time. I heard the Gillen one until somewhere in the middle where he puts an unmistakable signature on it. So... Have you heard the the Gillen Glover version? Nope. No, he posted this, but I still never, uh, I didn't really check it out, but it's worth looking into. Yeah, definitely. I'd, I'd like to hear that. That's that's one of the things that I would love is like to hear uh, something besides Hush with mm-hmm. uh, the two of them on it. Bird is Flown would be a very interesting one. And don't they do it like Gillen does Hush they they play Hush occasionally. They played it, I think, at their induction of the Hall of Fame. Well, even early on, on the uh, when we were talking about the album that we're going to be discussing today, um, I did listen to the 2002 reissue that has like the extra songs on it. One of them was Hush, mm-hmm. and um, it sounded it sounded kind of kind of similar, but not really. If that makes any sense, I didn't actually listen to that version. What 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 was the the difference? Um, Ian Gillen. <laughs> I mean, he's like he kind of sang in the low register, but like kind of like more more toward the um, the choruses and everything. He threw in a couple of his uh, signature, um, you know, vocal screams and. Uh, a little bit and then it's like okay it's but i mean it was obviously the you could tell it was it was him but at first it kind of sounded similar i guess mm-hmm. yeah. a little bit um it was really weird too because um yeah i hadn't really hadn't really uh heard that at least in a while or, yeah, or them it, do it so fresh from like changing the lineup you know yeah i'll need to check that one out at a later date um mike healy who comments uh, on a lot of really great comments. He posted this picture. Uh, He found this on eBay, which is a copy of Shades of Deep Purple signed by everyone except for Rod Evans because I I think a copy signed by Rod Evans would be pretty much non-existent. Uh, But this was, I guess, everyone had signed it back in the 70s except Nick Simper. So the seller has a photo of Nick Simper signing it in 2012. Cool. Along with it, so that's really cool. I think to to get our one complete with Rod Evans would be crazy. 
Well, you have to track him down first. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> and then nobody seems to know where he is, so that's... Uh... It would take you 12 months in a private investigator to track him down. He'd be like, I'm not signing that. That that life is behind me, kid. <laughs> <laughs> um, we got uh, Pot of Thunder recommending us, which is awesome. Because uh, they they had uh, we talked last week about how they reviewed Getting Tighter, and I listened to quite a few more of their episodes. Are really 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 great shows and really funny. Um, but he uh, he had recommended us. He remember he recommended Sabbath Bloody Podcast and Skinnerd Podcast, which I want to get into too, uh, which is really cool. So we oh, that's uh, that's cool. This Skinnerd Podcast is called Skinnerd Reconsidered. Huh. Uh, and you can see how it's spelled there. Reconsidered. Um, oh, I like that. And we had a little back and forth because he knows nothing about Deep Purple, and I know less than nothing about Leonard Skinnerd. Um, you know, if you unless you count knowing Sweet Home Alabama and Freebird, that's pretty much the extent. And I think they had three guitarists, and I know there was a plane crash, which is terrible. But that's about all. I do. You know any Skinnerd? Um. Yeah, what you said. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a very casual when it comes on the, the the radio or those kind of few facts that you threw out. That's all I know. Well, it's interesting because he's very like self aware of the kind of preconceived notions of Leonard Skinner. He's a uh, he's from the South. I don't know if he says where he's from. I only listened to the first episode so far. He's from the South. He kind of talks about some of those, you know racial overtones he really sets it in the first episode he's like hey uh i'm not into any of this sort of stuff he says some stuff that would probably piss off a lot of skinnerd fans right off the bat and he kind of talks about his love and hate relationship with the band which i think is really cool and uh the relationship with his father and his father getting him into skinnerd and i guess they only had five albums prior to that the plane crash and he goes through every he's really bite-sized episodes, like 20-minute episodes, talks about the song. And the first song he played was awesome. The first song off their first album, I was like, wow, I got to listen to some Skinner because, you know, I just, you hear these songs on the radio against your will and you just like, you kind of almost block them out. Yeah. Or don't pay attention. Um, so that's pretty cool. We had some kind of little back and forth about our shows, which was great. Yeah, that's uh, that's that's pretty awesome. I had, um, have you had any more interaction with uh pot of thunder aside from them mentioning us um no not really because i mentioned uh them in a uh instagram story mm -hmm. uh promoting um uh their their episode about uh deep purple yep. uh just to and and tagged us in it as well and so we messaged each other very briefly uh back and forth on Instagram and I just told them like uh, I I listened to after you had mentioned them last week uh, that that episode and I thought like everything <laughs> I was I was in I was in tears like when they're talking about Coverdale <laughs> stuff about Coverdale is so great <laughs> because it's like no it's just nothing like it's like it's not it's not I don't think anything is really based in facts it's just like stuff that they heard about them just their commentary or what the, the preconceived notions about them are and these guys are just like. They're just saying all this stuff like uh, if there's like a instrumental going on, Coverdale just goes off to the side of the stage and just looks down <laughs> at his crotch and smiles <laughs> while, they're, while, they're, while they're jamming. And it's like, what? And so I was listening to some back episodes. And I, I have to say, if anybody wants to hear anything, 
uh, you don't even have to like Kiss because it's even when they do the Kiss songs, they go off on these tangents, mm-hmm. which are so funny. I think the one that I told you about the other day was is they were just like going through a Kiss song and then they got off on a, like a 10 minute long tangent about the origins of German chocolate yeah. cake. And I'm just like, what the hell is happening right now? <laughs> but it was like, it was hilarious. It's like, you don't even realize that they do it. And then you're like learning about German chocolate cake or something like that. And um, it's just the, the commentary is just, uh, it's really, it's worth it because they have like these very distinct personalities. And one of the guys who I think his name is Chris just has this really, his delivery is just delivery is just hysterical. And just he can, he can string together a sentence just to pick the perfect words to just guarantee to make you laugh. Oh yeah. I don't, the, the the other guy's name, I I forget. Is, Is it, it's not Andy. Is it Andy? Um, I can't. I've only. I know they have that little, little thing, but yeah, I apologize to uh, Pot of Thunder, but he, he. I don't know how he holds it together as much as he does, because that guy is just wow. He, I mean, they're both really funny. It's it's a great show, and yeah, that's, uh, a, that's definitely a like a, a benchmark uh, to if we could if we could review albums like they do. Um, or song, yeah. That's just a song, and song, it's. I mean, yeah. it's well, cause the actual song portion of it is only maybe 20, 25, 30 minutes, but it's a lot of great discussion. The episode they posted today, I'm almost done with it, and it, it's about a Michael Shankar group or Michael Shankar and yeah, uh, UFO, Macaulay, no, no, McKaylee or Macaulay. Oh, okay. Uh, yeah. Some, which I, I'm not very familiar with his his work, but um. It's fun, like getting tighter. I was like almost nervous. Like, are they gonna like it? And they really liked it. And honestly, I think it would be hilarious hearing a review of trashing it. it. Either way, it'd be funny. But this one, they're really trashing the Michael Shankar. It's something from like the late '80s, really going for that. Like, yeah, trying to jump on that White Snake train, you know, going for that style. But um, anyway, it's a really great show. You should definitely check out Pot of Thunder. Absolutely. If you want to listen to a podcast, that's been around a lot longer than us and probably uh has a, is a, lot, a lot funnier <laughs> it's a, a lot, lot funnier than us or at least we think we're funny i don't know if anybody else does yeah some of the sometimes some things are some things are funny um so this is a tweet from uh terry mathley t-bones prime cuts does like this radio show or i guess a radio show and he kind of like posts songs he'll like kind of live tweet them and it's really cool but he gave us some uh some reviews and he says he has he hasn't really listen to much of the podcast he's actually recovering from a, a surgery and such so he hasn't uh listened to too much but he's looking forward to catching up on some of us so uh like most people he's kind of waiting for the mark two lineup so <laughs> yeah <laughs> we're gonna have some pressure on us after this episode even though this is technically mark two um and then the big news of the week david coverdale retweeted us yeah and um yeah that was just a real thrill getting a getting a retweet by david coverdale uh, he follows no one. He follows zero people. <laughs> on Twitter. He he tweets about he tweets about four hundred times a day, uh, the cr- and he has the craziest like um, Twitter style, if you want to call it. Like he posts, like he doesn't use em- emojis, but he uses like old school emoticons. So if he likes someone something, he'll put a smiley face. If he really likes, he'll put like smiley face times two. <laughs> or sometimes he'll post something that's like a, a funny meme and he'll write encore. <laughs> he just, it's, it's such a weird, a we like I only started following him like this week and it's just almost like I opened Twitter and I'm scrolling through a hundred David. Like, how does this 
guy as prolific as him have time to tweet as much as he does. It's insane. Um, but he, yeah, he, he, he commented, which is really, really amazing that he did that. And then um, that was a few days ago. Um, a post I put about John Lord's Windows album that David Coverdale and Glenn Hughes participated on. And then today he retweeted us again, which was awesome. I posted, it was the anniversary of his uh, Unplugged performance with uh, Andrea, uh, Adrian Vandenberg. Mm-hmm. Have you ever seen that one live in Tokyo? Um, I've heard it. I haven't seen like video of it or anything. The video is weird because it's like it looks like he's in like a lobby of a hotel with like the plants against the wall and stuff. <laughs> Very odd. But um, man, what a performance! Like to just have you got a guy playing the guitar and a guy singing, and that's you got to be good to pull that off. There's no you're not hiding behind anything. And of course, it's freaking David Coverdale. So uh, mm-hmm. what what a what a voice he's got. Um, so I posted that and he, and he talked about unzipped, which is one of their little compilation albums where they remastered that particular version. And I posted just a video of them doing soldier and fortune, which was really cool. So that's kind of all we got for updates for the week. Although I guess that's enough, but lots of lot. Oh, another thing is, um, Candace Knight, uh, also retweeted one of our things and that got us like hundreds of likes and comments and stuff. So, Oh, uh, we just cracked a hundred followers about five minutes before we started record recording. So, yay! Thanks. Up, up about fifty followers from last week. So, hey, it's something. Yeah, we're it's slowly getting. And like I've said before, the amount of engagement is really the the important thing. There's so much engagement, so many comments, so many people telling stories of how what the music means to them, and it's just like it's really encouraging to see there's that many people that love this music. So, yeah. Cool. So with that, I'm going to get to the album at hand. And I thought we would do something a little different. Well, we have a little history to go through, of course. This wouldn't be the Deep Purple podcast without a little history lesson. But I thought we would just watch the actual concert and not not just listen to it. Mm-hmm. Because this, un- unlike, I guess, any other Deep Purple album, or maybe probably any other album we'll talk about on the show... This one has the benefit of having been recorded live with video cameras for TV. Uh, so we can actually, rather than just listening to it, we, we can watch the, the the performance, which if yeah. you're listening to this in a podcast, won't mean much to you, except you might hear us talking about specific visuals going on. But if you're watching on YouTube, you're in for a treat. But yeah, the, the visuals are what really, I think, make it. Um, at least they did for me. Like I don't know if I got the album first or if I saw the video. I probably got the album first and then I got like it, uh, a bootleg or something of it on VHS. But like watching the performance was just kind of the coolest part. My first memory of this is being in your basement and you just whipping out this VHS and being like, check out what I got. And when we were both, well, I don't want to say both start, but we were both starting to really explore Deep Purple more. And you had way you introduced me to all this kind of underbelly of deep purple i never knew i had this very narrow scope and when i that's one of the first things you showed me i think even before you showed me that copenhagen uh i wanted yeah. i wanted to say dvd but they did not exist then um yeah, yeah that must VHS. have been also a bootleg v, vhs i got at that 
place on Route 44, I think, that sold yeah. bootlegs. And um, yeah, at the time, yeah. So, so I remember you whipped that out and and put that put that in the VCR, and we we're just I was just like, oh my god, I couldn't believe that this has happened. And I, I watching the visuals, and I find like when you watch like a video or a live performance or something before you actually hear the music. You're always kind of that's your first impression, and you're always kind of got that impression in your mind. And that's I've always had a real. I know some parts of this are difficult for a lot of fans, but I've always had a real soft spot for this album. So, that being said, getting into it, we've got um, we talked about in the last episode, in episode six, Ian and Roger joining the band before Nick and Rod left and recording the song Hallelujah, which gets released as a single with the song April as the B-side, even though April was recorded with Rod Evans and Nick Simper, which had to be a little weird. I, I just, I think it's funny. They just like, they recorded a single behind their backs. They just like, they sneak them into the studio. They're just like, I don't know. I can't think of an analog for that in the modern or in any era of, of, I guess the closest thing would be that I can think of is the Beatles had on one of the one of their early first first singles. I think George Martin had brought in a session drummer because he wasn't sold on Ringo, and <laughs> just kind of the devastation Ringo felt. However, Ringo was allowed to stay in the band and be in the band and record on all the rest of their <laughs> music for the most part, unless mm. Paul McCartney was doing his drums over in secret. So. But other than that, I can't think of many times when like a band would just, it's like they had an affair. They had like a, they cheated on Rod and Nick. It's such a weird scenario. Yeah. They weren't broken up yet, but so Ian and Gil and Ian and Roger leave episode six officially in July of 1969. And the concerto was recorded in in September. So you're talking just a matter of um, not even 12 weeks. I don't think between the two. Yeah. Uh, Sheila Carter Dimmick from episode six said in an interview that she viewed the breakup as inevitable. She said that um, in a quote from the, the book, The Road of Golden Dust, she says, sooner or later, someone was going to see this good looking guy with a great voice, oozing charisma and snap him up. Um, in, uh, or in Ian, Gill- Ian Gillen's autobiography, he seems to say she was a little angrier than that. Uh, um <laughs> But that's that's what she's re- recorded as saying. There was, as we talked about, a little bit of a legal bat- battle between Gloria Bristow, the manager of Episode 6, and the Deep Purple management. They settled that for $3,000. Nick Simper was furious with the way that this went down, gets lawyers involved. Uh, he ends up going with a 10,000-pound settlement. And this is in lieu of any royalty deal moving forward with the band. So it sounds like he had a really bad deal or, or a bad lawyer. Or I guess, I guess it's hindsight. If the band had just gone nowhere, that would have been a great deal. But I think he left a lot of money on the table. Well, I mean, if he knew now what he knew then, I mean, back then he probably thought like they, they didn't go anywhere after three albums in 18 months or whatever. So it could have, it could have been anybody's game. I mean, they were, they really weren't, anybody they weren't anything so he probably thought yeah this is a good deal but if he if if he flashed forward from now back then he'd he'd probably be like damn it yes a play playing the odds i'm sure that was the smart move but yeah so it goes but ultimately it was not 
so one of the things I read about this kind of this development in this time period was that reporters weren't quite sure what to make of the sound that Deep Purple was developing. Not just Deep Purple, other bands too. And they were uh, started calling it progressive rock, which was interesting mm-hmm. to me. Like, you know, we've all heard of progressive rock or prog rock, mm-hmm. but you don't think of Deep Purple as prog rock. Kind of like in the early 90s, like everything that was not hair metal was alternative. Mm-hmm. It was either hip hop or it was, if it had guitars, it was alternative, you know, because they didn't have big, big hair. And that didn't really make any sense because you had a band like Soundgarden was alternative, but Nirvana was also alternative, you know, and I mean, God, Soundgarden was more closer to hair metal than they were alternative. But uh, so that kind of seemed to fade as we get like more into the seventies, prog rock develops a very, like that very technical, uh, what they call like math metal now, Um, you know, (laughs) very like odd time signatures and long extended uh, orchestrated jams and things like deep, dream theater and things like that would have would evolve from that um so anyway the things are things are gearing up uh in this time john lord is says in an interview that we believe in experiment and excitement we're trying to develop uh we were trying to develop unnaturally before we'd grasp at all sorts of different ideas at once like a child in a garden full of flowers he wants them all at once when ian and roger joined something very nice happened with the group so that sets the stage for where we're going to go with the concerto, which was eventually released in uh, December of 1969 by Tetragrammaton uh, in the U.S. and then in January in the U.K. John Lord, and and as we talked about before, in the U.K., this came out before the Deep Purple album mm-hmm. to add further confusion. So John Lord says the history of this is he had heard uh, uh Bernstein plays Brubeck plays Bernstein. So it was like Leonard Bernstein conducting Dave Brubeck's band. And when he was in the art woods, he really wanted to do that sort of thing. They tried to line something up a few times, but it just kind of fell through. Uh, there'd been a lot of bands that tried to fuse classical and rock. There was Nero and the Gladiators in 1961 did a version of Hall of the Mountain King. And in 1965, Blackmore, when he was in a Richie Blackmore, he's a group called the the Lancaster tried tried to do a version of this as well. Um, Dave Edmonds' band Love Sculpture, which I think is a pretty good name for a band, had done an arrangement of uh, of the Saber Dance, and so there've been a few like little things. And then we even talked about last week about uh, episode six doing Mozart versus the rest. So this kind of thing was starting to pop up, but putting an actual band and an orchestra on the same stage was a little bit new. Keith Emerson had done something sort of similar the previous year, um, which I can put a link to in the show notes. There's like a audio, there's a a recording of it, though it doesn't quite strike the same chord as what we're talking about today. So the head of the new label that Deep Purple is in Malcolm Jones was really encouraged with the hallelujah signal. It apparently didn't do anything as far as sales, but it got a lot of good press and positive press, so we really wanted to jump on that. And John Lord had been talking about doing this concerto for a while, and then one day Tony Edwards walks in, uh, one of the managers for Deep Purple, and says, hey, you know that concerto you've been talking about? Well, I booked the Royal Albert Hall uh, in September, so we're going to do it. And then John Lord's like, okay, now I guess i got to write a concerto. So it's kind of like his bluff had been called. Uh, so they 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 got Malcolm Arnold to conduct, who was one of the most well-respected conductors in all of 
London, and that was it. They were they had he had six months to write this concerto, get it out there. This was before Rod and Nick even left the band. So this is April. Ian and Roger come in about half the halfway point between the two, and then after they join, they're writing and recording in rock and writing and getting ready to record the concerto. So that that's pretty nuts. I I can't even imagine the pressure that must have been on John Lord at this point. And as we'll get into, the rest of the band is are kind of assholes to him through this whole process. Because they're they're yeah. upset about this direction. Especially Richie. <laughs> Especially Richie. Although it's funny because Ian Gillen kind of is pretty outspoken about it too, considering he'd only been in the band for a few weeks. He hadn't even been in the band as long as this concept. So a little few little quick notes about Malcolm Arnold, because I found him to be really interesting. He's born in 1921. He would have been 47 when he conducted this, and John Lord was 28. So pretty young for John Lord. I had not written any concertos by the age of 28. <laughs> I've written many by now, but um, so Malcolm Arnold started playing the trumpet when he was 12. He was inspired by uh, Louis Armstrong and he, by 1943, he became the principal trumpet player in the London Philharmonic. During World War II, he registered as a, con- he registered as a conscientious objector um, and he was put into, but he was still put into the National Rifle Service. I'm not sure how that works. He ended up having to go into a military band and to get out of the army, he shot himself in the foot. <laughs> <laughs> kind of got to got to admire the guy. He returned to the London Philharmonic um, until 1948. Then he retired f- to become a full time composer and ends up being one of the biggest composers in Britain. Did tons of <clears throat> successful compositions for movies. He did the f- the full movie score for the Bridge Over the River Kwai and numerous other movies. So this is the guy that people kind of went to in situations like this. Uh, According to an article from the Daily Mail, by 1961, he had a reputation for being frequently drunk and highly promiscuous. I'll put a link in the show notes, but they kind of paint a picture of him. Had a lot of mental health issues. He ended up being hospitalized after two suicide attempts. He eventually overcame depression. Uh, They gave him one year to live, but he lived another 22 years, and he died at 84 in 2006. Wow. And he was knighted in 1993. So, interesting notes about Mr. Mr. Arnold. Uh, I that's the most I've ever learned about him. Yeah, just know and you'll see soon in the video as you remember, he's a very animated guy, just yeah. kind of the almost a caricature of what you'd expect uh, somebody conducting an orchestra to be like. Yeah. So, as we lead up to the concerto, Ian Gillen's not happy with the project. He was quoted as saying, uh, Roger and I, being the new boys, were thinking, what's going on here? Are we a rock band or a classic rock gimmick band? A classical rock gimmick band. Blackmore was also really against the concerto. He wanted to go more in this hard direction. Malcolm Arnold had seen some pages about this uh, from John Lord's score and he got really excited about it. And he ends up sitting down with John Lord and helping him figure out how to score this because John Lord had never <clears throat> scored anything this elaborate before um this was going to be recorded on tv it was going to be a very good move for the band um roger glover in the the documentary roger glover made in wales he talks about the lead up to this and how they were only in the band for a few weeks and that just saying that we were he said he felt like he was completely out of his depth 
doing this. Like he's in, you know, he goes from a struggling band playing, you know, little clubs in Beirut to being on the floor of the Royal Albert Hall performing live with a full orchestra backing. I mean, I, I, to me, I, I feel like I, I could have maybe mentally at his age gotten through that, but now it like, it scared me to death. Yeah. You know, I don't, I think at that age, you're just like, Oh, whatever. I, you know, I'll just power through it. And I think I would just, I would die of stress leading up to that. So, um, they had the, uh, again the label struggling at this point. They're trying to release the Deep Purple album, but they're all they're having all this backlash in America because of the crazy, you know, n- naked images on the back of the album. Uh, this is the same label that had released John Lon- John Lennon and Yoko Ono's Two Virgins album, and they had to put it in a paper bag to sell it. So they're kind of like thinking of doing the same thing with Deep Purple. And as we talked about, the Deep Purple album got terrible sales. So John Lord's working nonstop on the concerto. The rest of the band are going gigs, they're rehearsing, and then they're sleeping until noon. And John Lord, John Lord's up all night writing the concerto, trying to get it ready. Um, so the initial run through, they they do a little rehearsal before what we're about to hear. And John Lord says it was an unmitigated disaster. He said he was almost in tears. Everything went wrong. They played. Everyone played poorly. It was just horrible. One of the cellists stands up. And 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 she like pronounces that she's upset that they have to play with this second-rate Beatles. Ouch! <laughs> and kind of storms off. Um, but uh, at one point, I guess Malcolm Arnold stands up, and this is recorded. I've seen this in a few different books. He stands up and basically just like lays into the orchestra. He says. He, at one point, he says, you're supposed to be the finest orchestra in Britain, but you're playing like a bunch of see you next Tuesdays. <laughs> and um, I guess everyone everyone kind of got, got spooked by how upset he was screaming at them. And then later on, he calmed down a little bit and he says, tonight we're going to make history, so we might as well make music at the same time. So they they get ready to to, to go. Um, John Lord is quoted as saying, the musicians were obliged to play and some of them hated it. Even the people in the audience weren't all that thrilled. But it was 1969. I think, ev- uh, But I think everything one does is a product of its time. Some things in this concerto were really very much dead weight. I'd be the first to admit it was only an experiment. I wanted to try and break these boundaries that separated rock and roll from classical. On the other hand, I don't want to reject anything I once did afterwards. I now... Only look back at something from, if you like, a wiser perspective. The fact that it was important at the time, and to be honest, I still like some of the melodies. Gillen singing, Richie's angry guitar, the whole atmosphere. I wouldn't distance myself from it. So there's tensions building up in the band. The band's playing all these live shows. And then Gillen is quoted as saying, I must admit my attitude was all wrong. Roger and I had only just joined the band and we really didn't appreciate what working with the Royal Philharmonic Orchestra at the time could do for us. We were already writing for the album, and this seemed like an unwanted interruption. Deep Purple have always tried to be challenging, yet here uh, here we were with something truly challenging and different, and we couldn't appreciate what we had. So that's obviously him from more recently, Yeah, <laughs> looking at it in perspective. So there you have it. That's the lead up to the concerto. And... Uh, Without further ado, should we start this guy up? 
Yeah. So it starts off with... Now we're going through the whole thing, or...? Well, well, I think we can jump around a little bit. Okay. So, it starts off with this little... Almost like an advertisement for it. <laughs> In this TV special, it does. I'm not getting any audio. Oh. I messed that up. So there you go. It happened in London. It happened in the Royal Albert Hall. The world premiere of a new musical event. So there's a brief couple minutes of kind of talking about, about <clears throat> this because this was a TV special. And it is slightly, the music is slightly abridged, but I don't think it's going to matter because we weren't going to go through every minute of each movement. <laughs> so it starts with kind of some behind the scenes stuff. Kind of shows them kind of rehearsing with the band. Or with the band, with the orchestra. Yeah. And I'd recommend picking this up on DVD or whatever source you can, because it's it's really interesting to watch. So talking a little bit about John Lord, we skip ahead a little bit, we get to... Um, we get to Malcolm Arnold talking with... Yes, what's it like playing with us squares? Well, the first rehearsal the other day, and we sat down here and was like, <laughs> so they kind of just have a little chat at John Lawrence, Oregon. Malcolm Arnold, I think it's pretty cool that, you know, being a huge classical composer, he was so willing to accept them and, and kind of in awe of them. Yeah. Here it is. Here it begins. And this seems to cut off about mm, four minutes from the first movement. And that might be four minutes of Richie's guitar solo for all I know. So they kind of lay down a theme here. Which the band will pick up a little bit later when they come in. So the band comes in right around. Just all of a sudden jump in there. Yes, this is when I first got excited. So this is an extended intro, and then the band and the orchestra kind of have start having these back and forths. Here comes yeah. Roger. 
I mean, this is a great instrumental section featuring Richie. I just remember trying to, when we, we were recording, trying to recreate this guitar tone. I mean, not having a $3,000 guitar and not being in the Royal Albert Hall made it a little difficult. But just that sound he has. But I mean, also remember like what, like a year before that he was playing this god awful <laughs> guitar on you know the first couple of deep purple albums and now it's like god what a like what a great player what a great solo this is he is just all over it in this part and john lord would later kind of refine this idea when he does gemini suite which I think is just the next year. And Richie's like, has no part of it. He's like, I'm done with that. And he gets Albert Lee to play. But do you have your eyes closed? Albert Lee and Richie Blackmore are almost indistinguishable. Albert Lee is incredible. And I think I read something where Richie said at this point, he was just, he'd just been playing guitar for about 15 years. Yeah, well, yeah. Yeah, something like that. It's very hard to make, like when you, I just love looking at the faces of the orchestra just sitting there. I like this and guy. And that guy, <laughs> that guy just, they keep cutting to that guy and I can understand why, because he's just getting into it. 60s style. Yeah, yeah, people only got into stuff like that in the 60s. There, there were a couple of points in this where you'll see like over Richie's shoulder something like the orchestra guy one of the orchestra guys and they're just like <laughs> there's one point when he does his little solo and that comes up pretty soon it's just it's the it's the moment i remember the most from watching this originally because he just he has <laughs> the look on his face says it all if you watch nothing else from the concerto you have to watch the part where richie plays and the violin player behind him just smirks yeah wiggling his eyebrows there <laughs> so this goes on for this a while oh yeah great. a little you know Richie throwing in a couple of like really nice syncopated rhythms and and just raking the strings yeah And I just kind of like how like Malcolm Arnold's just standing there like, you done yet? <laughs> well, and they talk about it too. You don't really see it in this, but there's an extent, there's a point where he was supposed to go for 90 seconds and he ends up going for a long time and Malcolm Arnold's desperately trying to get his attention. But you knowing Richie, he's probably purposefully ignoring him. And he just goes on for like multiple minutes. Well, because he's like, I don't want to be here anyway. So I'm just going <laughs> to rip an awesome solo as long as I want. Here we go, they start syncing up here. Now they start to have a back and forth again.
See, this is stuff like this. It just makes me think people should not dismiss this album. It's just... Again, it's not something you're going to listen to every day on your drive to work or whatever, but as a no. as a historical moment and something to actually sit and watch the performance visually, it's incredible. Oh, yeah. I mean, yeah, this is definitely something that you should be watched. It's much more interesting that way. And there are actually very few parts in this where the band and the orchestra are playing together. It's like mostly like uh, adversarial, which I think is how it was written. And it's incredible. I think more so in the third movement where they hit all of these marks, the band and the orchestra mm-hmm. switching off and just all of these downbeats and upbeats that they're hitting together is just, I mean, it's incredible. And Roger Glover talks about being out of his depth, but I'm just looking at him being like, how does he, how is he hitting those notes? So the band's going to come back in right about here. Another little extended jam here. Looks like it looks like Ian Place is playing with like toothpicks. Their his drumsticks are so skinny. Yeah, but he's he's killing it. They're all oh yeah. You know, one thing I always found interesting was how John Lord really just kind of gave himself like not a really big part in this like like he, he didn't even, like richie had this like really long solo i mean john lord just solos for a little bit he like doesn't feature himself which i mean i know he wrote the whole thing but you figure like this part right here is really nice yeah yeah this really grew here with it when the orchestra comes back in see those bows go up And you're going to want to watch over Richie's shoulder on this next part. <laughs> this is really cool. I love this. Watch the violinist. <laughs> Wiggling like, can you, Nigel, can you believe this? <laughs> he thinks he's good. <laughs> well, that guy had probably been playing violin for 50 years at that point. I was probably one of the best violin players in the entire world. And sadly, we don't know his name. Somebody uh, out there does. But yeah, it's just uh, its just quite a sight to behold. Um, uh, so th- it's just like, if they, if they weren't paying me 500 pounds for this performance, <laughs> I'd be out of here. You know? I like this guy on timpani. He's very young looking. He looks kind of yeah. like Forrest Gump. <laughs> or like Martin Short. <laughs> I mean, I guess everybody, like every straight cut guy in the 
60s look like Forrest Gump. Yeah. No, not taking anything away from him. So the band's going to come back in, in just a minute here. Skip ahead just a smidge. So you had this segment where Richie's playing his solo, then you have a segment where John's playing his solo. You've got Ian doing the vocals. You've got, you know, an orchestral clarinet solo here. You have a drum solo later on. And, and why I was saying earlier, he, he kind of refines this with a Gemini suite and he has it broken up instead of five movements. I think there's, instead of three, I think there's five. One for guitar, one for organ, one for vocals which features Yvonne Elliman, actually, and um, does the drums. So he kind of like does the same sort of idea, but he kind of expands upon it. So it'll be interesting to tackle that one down the road. So here we go. This is kind of, we're starting to end the first movement here. It's going to be the climax to the first movement. Now this part right here is just so well orchestrated. that's the end of the first movement so nice. i mean really really impressive stuff and how they could possibly have done that in such little they didn't have much time to rehearse because you, you know you can't just rent the philharmonic for rehearsal time yeah. and and what you were saying about uh john lord saying that the one of the rehearsals was like a disaster. It's like, you'd never know it by seeing this. But you could easily see how this would could become a disaster. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, but, yeah. I, I, I think it's really, and again, I'm not, we're not musical experts. We don't know everything that's ever happened. But to me, this is different. We've talked about how this is different than Metallica just playing live with violins, playing along to whatever it is, Fade to Black. While that's cool, and there's no, not taking anything away from that, this is something altogether different. And that, that back and forth and trade-off between the orchestra and the band is just, it's incredible. I've never, I've never heard anything like it before or after. And if anyone had, other than like something like Gemini Suite, which is also by John Lord, but if anyone has or can tell us of, of, of a thing that might have preceded this that would have led to it, from what I heard from the, briefly from the Keith Emerson thing, it wasn't quite, didn't have quite that same, that same feeling to it. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah, I think that, uh, the thing that still impresses me about this 
is the fact that it is a whole new like batch of songs like the 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 expanded version which we're not talking about today does have them playing other songs during this performance but i mean the 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 center of this whole piece is the the original music that they wrote and the interplay between and like the um like the the orchestra versus the band type of thing which was like completely original not playing like any of their other songs or anything which is just like um i mean it's really like what they were trying to accomplish which is like melding classical music and rock together like in an original like brand new way like taking like legit like classical music not just uh having a classical influence but like you know what i mean yeah yeah the, like you said cool. they're, they're not just playing um you know smoke on the water with the the violins going dun, 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 dun. Exactly. you know which is what a lot of bands would have done you know yeah, they would yeah you're taking like music that was like inspired by like classical composers and putting it together with like the band which is like truly like melding them together like trying to create like a new style and i think that a lot of it really works because a lot of rock music is really um dynamic and like uh, uh you know passionate and has all those highs and lows and like is really you know what i mean the same as like classical which mm-hmm. i mean you could you could see it hidden in all sorts of different ways and like um and all sorts of rock music, but it, it's like, it's, it's really like the, the dynamics are the same if like the, the music itself really isn't. Right. So. And we, we talked uh, a little bit before the show, but we, we, we both, we, we've been rating songs and for this album, we both just kind of gave every song a three, <laughs> which is, yeah. it, it, it's, it's very hard to, these aren't songs. These are movements. Yeah. And, it's hard to rate them the same way you're rating an album. I love this album. I think it's great. I think it's an amazing work. I just kind of gave it that kind of run of the mill three because in thinking of this in the whole as an album, and if I'm looking at an album, am I going to put this on while I'm driving in the car or am I going to put on, I don't know, burn, you know? So uh, I don't want that to take anything away from this because I think this is one of the more interesting and important uh, musical experiments that any of the people in, involved with Deep Purple ever did, mm-hmm. despite and the I mean, f- fact that everyone hated it at the time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but I mean, if you think about it too, like I mean, we we saw this at the time, not knowing any of this, and a lot of the stuff that you just like read about the 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 conflict in the with the band and everything before that, I didn't know a lot of that either. Um, but it doesn't really show like they really committed to it and if you if you look at like the performances how cool they are i mean it's like you have john lord who wrote the whole thing pretty much who's like 28 all the other guys are like early 20s like i think the rest of them were 24 and ian pace was like just barely 21 like he just turned 20 i mean could you imagine being like like just being like just turning 21 and like doing that I can't even imagine just being 21. <laughs> Sounds great. <laughs> but I mean, he was basically like, you know, still a kid and he's like playing with the, the London Philharmonic Orchestra and he's killing it. Mm-hmm. I mean, all of them were, you know, and it's just like, it's, it's crazy to think about, um, you know, that they were, and I mean, I'm saying that through the years, I mean, some of the greatest composers uh, and even now you can see like on YouTube, these really young 
kids like, you know, playing this really, you know, at a high level and stuff like that, but just still blows my mind, you know, when I think about, you know, in, in our lifetime, um, you know, uh, there were people that young, like doing stuff that's groundbreaking because we can't be like, oh, well, you know, Beethoven is, I mean, that was like, <laughs> that was way before we were born, you know, but something like this, I feel is like, you know, pretty groundbreaking and it happened, um, um, not, well, it was before our lifetime, but I mean, we not that yeah. much before, but I mean, all the, exactly. But all the people that are involved with it are still, except for John Lord, um, you know, we, we still live to, you know, see them create other music and you know what I mean? It's like, it's, right. it's kind of a, kind of a cool thing. Um, uh, aside from the fact that I, I love the video too, because one of the things, uh, the watching the performance was kind of like the, the, the stuffy old orchestra playing was like really cool. But to me, it was just kind of like, I always knew that there was kind of a thing there between them and the band. Like it was like when the band yeah. was playing, I'm just like, yeah, take that, you know, <laughs> yeah. like, take that old man. Oh <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah. It was almost like sitting there watching with my parents being just like, yeah, like these guys are like being really cool of, you know, and all these like old violin guys are just standing there and they got to take it, you know, and, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> which is pretty much what was happening. Oh but. yeah. They're like, Hey, do you want to still have a job? Then shut up <laughs> and but play the violin when it says on the damn sheet music. But I I always thought that that was the cool thing about watching it as you were seeing like this really like, like kind of like weird, like, you know, like uh, stark, like juxtaposition between like these really like, like you said, like really like um, uh, schooled classical players uh, really like accomplished and then like just a bunch of like 20 year olds being like, you know, hippies and everything that have been playing for like 10, 15 years and they're just like, oh, here we come and it's just, um, it, it's just, that's really cool because some of the coolest stuff is when you, you know, people say, oh, you can't put this and this together. And it's like, why not? And try it out because see what happens. Yeah, exactly. Cool stuff. You know, that's what happens when you think outside the box and that's what this was. And, you know, now it really isn't, but as you mentioned before, don't think anybody really has done anything like this since. No, no, not at all. Uh, with that, we get into uh, uh, the second movement. Which overall I feel is my least favorite. Overall, yes. So you really get a sense in watching this for the scene. You just see like the sea of people behind Malcolm Arnold as he conducts. And just big plumes of cigarette smoke rising into the air because you know you could just smoke wherever the hell you wanted in 1969 um (laughs) up until actually pretty recently you could do that um you see like a mixture of people in the audience like there's just people that are just clearly there that are probably on lsd there's people that are there that are kind of being respectful at one point you see this mother shushing her little child who's like kind of running around like you know like a kid in church or whatever the second movement starts up a lot slower than the first one. It's a really, really long and slow build until it gets to Ian Gillen, which... I'm he, not getting any audio again, by the way. You're not? I think it just might be really quiet. You hear that? Mm-mm. 
Oh. Well, I will put it back on. So, Ian Gillen, uh, I was not usually a huge fan of this kind of part of the of the concerto with with Ian Gillen's first part of his vocals. At first, I wasn't like hugely sold on it. I'm trying to figure out how to share this with you here. Um, here we go. So I wasn't I wasn't like hugely sold on on his particular vocal stylings on the first part, but I, it did really grow on me, and I did like the second part as well. Mm-hmm. Now, can you hear this? Yes. Okay. There we go. So the story goes that John Lord had been harassing Ian Gillen to write vocals for this part. Have you written the vocals for it? Have you written And Ian kept saying, oh, yeah, 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 I'll get around to it. I'll get around to it. And apparently before the per- the performance, they went to an Italian restaurant, which I guess was like right behind the Royal Albert Hall. And Ian Gillen and Malcolm Arnold had like a whole bottle of Chianti together. And Ian Gillen wrote the lyrics like literally like an hour before they went on while he was eating some Italian food. Which from... Well, you, can, you can tell too, because I mean, he's reading them off a sheet while he's saying. <laughs> exactly. It's really funny that like... It doesn't seem like, I guess Richie and, well, Roger Glover has some sheet music up. I don't know if it's sheet music or just arrangements, but yeah, most of them are just kind of going off the cuff and, and Ian Gillen's looking down at his lyrics and his lyrics are very much about the moment and about, you know, kind of like, you know, it's basically equates to, hey, I'm going to sing a song. I wonder what's going to happen. <laughs> Are the people going to like it? Are they going to laugh at me? What am I going to do? How will I know when it's time to start? That's <laughs> like, <it's> like <laughs> all of his lyrics. Not his best lyric outing ever, but hearing Ian Gillen sing at any point is is a treat. So he comes in right around here with his vocals. Let's see. Right around here. Here he comes. He goes looking down at his lyrics. And that woman is just like, cannot, oh. <laughs> she is just She's like, like, oh. oh. Oh, oh my! Take me to bed now. <laughs> <laughs> I'm pretty sure if Ian Gillow wanted to pursue something with her, he would have, he would have been okay. By the look at him, he's a very handsome guy. I mean, yeah, he he had everything. I mean, talent, looks, just like Sheila Carter said. Yep. Oozing charisma. The kind of guy that can join what's going to be one of the biggest bands in the world, be performing at the Royal Albert Hall, being harassed by the longtime member of the band who he's just joined. Hey, write those lyrics. 
I spent six months staying up until four in the morning every night writing this damn concerto. Write the lyrics. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. I'll get to it. And does it like an hour before they go on and somehow gets away with it. Like, you'd think most people would have just been fired. <laughs> so they go back into this. Um, they go back into the kind of this section right here. You can see John Lord flipping over his pages of his score as he tries to follow along. I've lost audio again. I think it's just, I think it's clipping, it clipping out because it's too quiet. Oh, okay. So Ian Killen's going to come back in. Oops. Oops. <clears throat> so they go through this big, long, extended jam, and then they kind of go back to the band. And I feel like when the band comes back in, this is a really, really great part right here. And this to me sound doesn't even sound like Deep Purple. This reminds me of like Joe Cocker kind of feel. Yeah. Even when Ian starts singing. Richie's playing is just incredible. Oh yeah. What shall I do when they stand smiling at me? Look at the floor and be so cool. Look at that look on Ian Gillen's face right there. Like, he looks like he's really, like, as much crap as he's talked about this project. Malcolm Arnold is just dancing. For a bigger guy, he's really bouncing around. <laughs> but for all the crap he talked about this, it really seems like in that moment he was really drinking it in, you know? Oh, yeah. this is this is what kind of clinches the second movement for me yeah and i think hearing ian gillen's it's hard hearing ian gillen in 1969 singing that kind of part over an orchestral part that just takes me to jesus christ superstar right away mm -hmm. and there's nothing wrong with that so this goes for a while they go another noteworthy part i think is right here which is um This to me sounds like Boston's foreplay. Some just great playing. 
John Lord has got some, you know, for the guy who wrote this and everything, he's got some great parts in here, but he's kind of overshadowed by Richie and the orchestra and everything mm-hmm. as far as playing goes. So the strings are going to come back in. There's going to be a a big timpani section right at the end of the second movement here. <clears throat> Drum, forest, drum. <laughs> <laughs> or maybe the actually the drum movement's probably in the more in the uh, beginning of the third movement. And then this just kind of this kind of ends the second movement. Kind of ends it a little bit. Where is it? It's gonna end right here. And they talk a little bit about how the audience didn't really know when to start clapping. or <laughs> And you could see it there. They're all just kind of like, are we supposed to clap now? That's the second movement. I think... Um, I think in there, you know, getting... Putting the words in... I always felt like when I first listened to this that the words were just kind of shoehorned in like it was like an afterthought like ah well ian's in the band we should let him sing something but i I think it really works yeah i mean um uh just like everything else that we've been listening to over again um i am approaching this with like a new perspective like i mean i thought of that part probably the same way for the longest time um but even like the like the emotion that you saw in his face like when he was between verses and everything. It's like that little type of stuff I've seen like a hundred times or whatever, but it's just like, I notice it more now um, for what it is or how, how great everything just kind of fits together. Um, and it's not like the, the whole thing actually isn't as long as I remember it being like, I rem- I, I always felt it was like, so like so long and it's actually very short, this whole thing. Yeah, I like think the whole concerto. I think it's yeah, like 20 40 like oh, it's like it's like 50 something minutes. Yeah, but I mean, you know, yeah. like years ago it could could have been like 2 hours for all I knew, you know. <laughs> yeah, it's one of those things you have to be in the right frame of mind to listen to too. Well, yeah, you don't just want to put it on when you're in the mood to like rock out. Exactly, exactly. I think I don't know, just that that moment where Ian Gillen just like finishes the first section of, of that second part of the song mm-hmm. and like that look on his face like can you just imagine being Ian Gillen and hearing your own voice reverberating through the Royal Albert Hall mm. or even being not Ian Gillen and hearing his voice come through I mean it's just <laughs> unbelievable and, and same thing with Richie like hearing that I mean I can't even imagine what it would have sounded like being there but listening to this 50 almost 50 year old recording of just that the the dynamics inside of that room of, the, of of his guitar and his guitar tone and it's the way it sounded. I, I remember that that part where he's playing and the guitar play or the violin player behind him is kind of giggling at him. I was I always trying to recreate that in various recordings, like that kind of feeling of that staccato sort of orchestra stop and the guitar keep continuing to go. And uh, like I said, that was just like my ideal guitar tone. Mm-hmm. It still kind of is. It's just such a great sound. 
Um, yeah, I agree. And, um, you know, I'm actually <clears throat> just maybe skipping back to the Deep Purple album. Like, I'm not even like, I always thought that maybe his sound changed because, or, or got better his sound playing whatever because he switched guitars but now i'm not even sure if he really did um because i mean some of the stuff on the deep purple album did sound like he was playing like a like a strat mm -hmm. um you know like a lalania and stuff like that but it's just like it's very clear that he's like he's playing that big hollow body guitar <clears throat> but he sounds like so much more like the 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 sound that he would like uh, go on to adapt like his playing his style and everything, but it's just, it's still so weird to me that he went from, you know, that kind of like tortured cat solo to like <laughs> soloing to like so good in like a year. Well, like we talked about, I think book of Taliesin was terribly mixed and possibly yeah. badly recorded. Like the, it just doesn't fit in the mix. It's like, it's like everything sticks out like a sore thumb. And I don't think yeah. his playing was any, worse or better on shades or on deep purple i think it was just a really bad mix in that particular album because even in shades of deep purple his playing didn't sound like book of talison book of talison was bad and i don't <laughs> think it was his fault interesting yeah. i posted a, a a video on twitter today of a performance they did it must have been shortly after in rock was released and in that video, he's going back and forth between the Strat and the Gretsch. And it's like a, a not oh. the, wait, not the Gretsch, the Gibson. I'm sorry. Uh, that same hollow-bodied one he's using here and just whatever Strat he had at the time. He's, he's going back and <clears throat> forth between the two within a performance where they only do a few songs. So mm -hmm. he, he must have kept that in his, in his, uh, in his onstage arsenal there for a, a yeah. short time at least. Okay. But yeah, like I can't recall many videos any much later than that where he's playing anything other than the uh, the strat. Yeah, yeah, but that's just my my own thing. Is is like I mean, yeah, it could have been like so many different things, but it's just like it was just like just hearing on like his the recorded works like how much better his playing was, and it's just like you know what I mean. Like I could. Like I want, like I couldn't believe, like when we went back to the first couple of albums, and I was just like, "Please stop!" And <laughs> but then it's just like, uh, like uh, the the extended solo section in the first movement here. He could have just played for like another twenty minutes, and I just would have been like, yes, "Oh yeah, keep going." <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. That that part could have never ended, as far as I was concerned. Yeah. Um, okay. So the next part. We'll fire up movement three here. Here's Malcolm Arnold. And this part starts a little frantic. This always reminded me of like the score of a horror movie. Yeah. Yep. Like this part here. French horns coming in. I love that that poor woman's getting a horn directly in her face. <laughs> I can't know if those are French horns or English horns. I don't know what the difference is. But I love how all the French horns, but to play it, you have to play it directly in the face of the guy sitting to your right. <laughs> <laughs> or that poor woman sitting to your right, whoever it may be. Oh, yeah. I never noticed they just, that. Every time they lift them up, it's like just blowing straight into the person's face. 
And this one, this this part's all about percussion. So you've got the, the orchestra snare, the timpani, the marimba. All that orchestral stuff is coming in before it leads to Ian Pace's drum solo. It definitely has a movie soundtrack feel to it. Oh yeah, this this part especially lay in the way it opens up. It just it makes me think of like a um, like something you hear in like a Dracula movie or something like that. Like uh, from from back at the time, like definitely like a like a like a, a horror like a suspense. This sounds you know. to me like it could almost be like a John Williams sort of hmm. like feel to it, especially with the horns. Like that, I could hear that in a Star Wars movie. So here come here comes Ian Pace. He's like, I've got a from here, boys. <laughs> he kind of looks like he's like holding his breath. And there's not a lot of time where the band and the orchestra are playing together. So when it does reach that crescendo at the end of the second movement, it's really exciting. You got here's a little boy like running around because he's bored. His mom's like, shh. I don't know how much of this is just B-roll from before the concert even started when they go to the audience, you know, but here we go. Now it sounds like a Western. <laughs> Doesn't it? I mean, yeah, it's yeah, a it beautiful does. little, like, almost flamenco-sounding line. So we go through this, we get to the, the band's going to come in together again. Another great, great deep purple style extended jam here. It's kind of one of their first early jams, you know, which they would do thousands and thousands of jams just like this in concerts for years after this. <laughs> that guy, that guy was on something. They keep cutting to him. Probably security didn't have him removed in the first movement. No, we need to re we need to represent the hippies. Yeah, exactly. Listen to this. All those like, quick quick hits from from the drums just. That guy looks like Ashton Kutcher. <laughs> guy in the audience. <laughs> that 70s show. Well, it wouldn't have been the 70s yet. Just really interesting to see all the different people in the audience, too. 
like you were saying before. You know the uh, the the mother with the kid, the LSD guy, the, the bored looking lady, the the thirsty chick, the, the military, the, the thirsty. <laughs> there's that there's like a military guy there too, like like an officer from the from the army is just standing there watching. Yeah, I wonder how people like like who like who went to this, like how was it advertised, and who like bought tickets to this. I'm sure they must have given tickets away for free to just kind of promote it because this is like going to be a big TV special. And I'm sure they wanted to have a lot of those like hippie type representation there, you know? There's Martin Short on drums. And here's Ian's drum solo. Yes. Good, good drum solo for a 21 year old although like, nothing to me beats that was the Copenhagen one that's an yeah, incredible the, the, yeah the Denmark one yeah. or Denmark that's like a 10 minute drum solo he's trying out some of those early tricks here some pretty incredible drumming I always forget that Ian Pace is left handed and plays left handed you know, he's got his hi-hats on the right side. Mm -hmm. Like, I always, like, can't think of any other drummers that play left-handed. You wonder what the timpani guy and the snare, the guy that just plays the snare drum in the orchestra, are, like, thinking about this. Like, are they envious of Ian Pace that he's in a rock band? Do they... Those guys are those guys are young. I mean, I'm. I'd love to interview one of them and see what they thought of this whole experiment. Because it's like it could you could see them being into this music, you know, even though they're in the Philharmonic or the. Kind of looks like animal right now. His hair <laughs> everywhere. He's just hitting every, and he's only playing a four piece set, which is crazy. Yeah. And he just brings the cowbell in right there. It's great. And he gets a little... And that gets the applause. He, he the gets cowbell. the applause. <laughs> Richie, Richie must have been pissed because he did all these solos. Nobody interrupted the movement to give him a solo. But Ian Pace gets the solo. Or gets the, uh, gets the applause. It's like they were too young to know any better or too young to know that this was as big a deal as it was yeah I don't think I would sleep for a week leading up to this if you told me I had to do it yeah look at that crowd that had they had to just let anybody in <laughs> hey you like psychedelic music do you like do you like stuffy classical music? <laughs> well, apparently they played before this. This was like a long show. They played uh Malcolm Arnold had written a symphony that they played right just before this. <clears throat> then Deep Purple played like a show with five s songs or whatever. And then they did the concerto. So there would have had to been like a change in the in the 
or maybe like in the good seats, you had like the, the well the well off people, and they just let the the hippies come onto the floor or whatever. Mm, yeah. And Ian Gillen's just sitting there for ninety percent of this, just sitting there, just kind of with a you know a violin's a violinist's knee in his back, practically. He's just <laughs> crammed next to the bass amp. He had to have been a pretty pretty good sport about that. Oh, she's freaking out. <laughs> she can't believe it. <laughs> that had to have been B-roll. Yeah. This part's great. Richie Blackmore is changing the switching the page on his sheet music. He looks like he's lost. But I think he's about to rip into it. This is great. Here we go. And then as we began, we kind of end with a little percussion here. Some really, really intricate little marimba, timpani, snare parts. And the strings are just kind of droning in the background, keeping the beat while the percussionists run away with it. Here we go. This is kind of the grand climax coming up here. All the bows are going up on the violins. The guy with a little bugle. Here it comes. You see John Lord just sink down into his seat like, oh my God, I cannot believe that we pulled that off. <laughs> Malcolm Arnold's calling him up to the, whatever the heck you call it. I want to say podium, but. The balcony, the, sure. the riser, whatever. Wherever the conductor conducts from. I'm sure there's a technical term for it that people are yelling at the at their podcast right now. So John Lord is like being very obnoxious about it, insisting that the, the, uh, Everyone in the orchestra stand up for the ovation. Richie Blackmore looks legitimately happy right there, too. He looks like, oops, crap. He looks, Richie Blackmore looks really happy about all the applause that they're getting. But you could, you could just see everyone in the, in the orchestra being like, well, it's not proper. We're not supposed to stand up and it's supposed to be for the conductor. Uh, we'll do it, I guess. <laughs> Um, curses. So a great night for John Lord as he soaks in the 
applause from the crowd. That's it. What a great, what a, what a great event that would have been to be at. And I mean, they look like you, you saw all of them, like not just Richie, but all of them were like smiling. Yeah. I mean, it had to have felt good. Well, you know what? They were all professionals about it. They did their job. They, they came in and they performed what they needed to perform. And I, I think a lot, I I think a lot of them are a lot more, uh, or maybe putting on about how put off they were by this whole thing. I think that. I think they had to have had a good time. Yeah, I think there was a lot of like maybe feelings leading up to it and they're probably and then you know, like Ian Gillen's recollections later about how he should have appreciated it more, they should have all appreciated it more, but I'm sure that during it they were really into it and um nervous and excited and enjoying themselves and the adrenaline and everything. So I think like at that moment, they were probably really just loving it and appreciating it. And then everything kind of surrounding it is what they're talking about. Like, you know, maybe right. before the feelings after like, yeah, thank God it's over and who knows what else. But um, I was reading, I forgot who said it, <laughs> but someone compared it someone in the band, I can't remember which, who it was, but they, they kind of said that this was looming over them, like a trip to the dentist. Like they were like, Oh, we got that concerto we have to do. Ah, you know? And then when it was all over, they were like, ah, it wasn't so bad. You know, like <laughs> wasn't as bad as it making out to be. Oh, so uh, enough, my, my trips to the dentist are the op- opposite. I, because I dread them. And then afterwards I'm just like, I can't feel my teeth for three months, you know? So it's, <laughs> But I know what you're getting at. <laughs> so I was just reading while I was waiting for you to reconnect. I just opened up uh, Ian Gillen's Child in Time and uh, checked it out and looked for this part because I hadn't read it. And he says that that night after the show, John Lord's first child was born. Whoa. Yeah, which I hadn't seen anywhere else, but I thought that was pretty cool. So pretty big day for John Lord. <laughs> yeah, jeez. Um, so... So in six months, between August of 1969 and January 1970, Deep Purple released three albums, Book of Taliesin, Deep Purple, and The Concerto, in six months. This, this one seemed to have gone off the best. Um, everyone was really, really, really happy with the show, and more importantly, it seemed to be like uh, John Coletta, one of the managers for Deep Purple, took complete control over the publicity around this event to catapult this band. So while this isn't well known outside of like deep purple hardcore fans. This seemed to be what took them to the next level. It got them a ton, a ton of press. It was aired on the BBC. People were really interested in this band. It came with a lot of other aspects, which is that people weren't really sure what to make of the band. I was reading about one show where they thought they had to book an orchestra to play with Deep Purple when they booked Deep Purple to play. And they couldn't get one. So they just like, they hired like a brass band to be there. I don't know what they, I don't know how they thought this was going to work. Like, oh, I'll just get, bring a band. They'll, they'll make it work. So when Deep Purple got there, they're like, what the hell is this? And they just had the brass band open for them and then they played. 
<laughs> so it's it definitely could cause a lot of confusion. And I'm sure for like the whatever six months after this, it was really frustrating for the band. And there was like stories of Richie like storming off, like being like, ah, we're that. It's like hanging around our neck, this stupid concerto, you know, being all dramatic about it. But I I, th- I think they I I couldn't have lasted too long. They must have shed that eventually and and moved on. Well, I was also um, another interesting fact I didn't know is is that um, did you know that this was actually performed twice? You know, I read that it was performed three times. I had read that it was performed twice. Like a couple of several months later, they performed it at the I think the Hollywood Bowl or the something like that in California. So what I I, I read that as well, and I was surprised too because I'd never heard that. And then mm-hmm. in one of the other books, I think it was the Smoke on the Water book, they talk about how they performed it three more times: once in Zurich, once mm-hmm. in Vienna, and the last time was at the Hollywood Bowl in Los Angeles, and right. then they lost the score. Right. Which is insane to me. Yeah. Which they didn't say that. It's just like, they just like, whoops. (laughs) Whoops. We lost the score. And when we, I remember we talked about this years ago, shortly after it came out uh, in 99, they performed this again Mm -hmm. with many, many other things, not just the concerto. And they had to rewrite the score from scratch because it was lost. And I can't like, the idea that you'd have the one and only copy of the score traveling with you and then, oops, we lost it, seems insane to me. Yeah, I wonder what happened to it. I wonder if somebody, like, picked it up and now they're, like, hoarding it. That'd be a great collector's item, <laughs> except you'd probably be arrested. <laughs> <laughs> but it's, it's crazy, though, is, is that I think it was, like, a, a uh, another composer uh, was working with John Lord to to reconstruct it based on like audio and video. They said they would mm-hmm. like watched video of it as well. Yeah. I'm sure that was really helpful that they had that to just kind I mean, of. This, yeah. So, uh, but that's nuts. If I were John Lord, I would just been like, fuck, <laughs> like, you know, like if you, it's like the, like how, like, like considering like how much he worked on it. Could you imagine if what I, like his reaction must've been when he found out it got lost? No offense to the late great John Lord, but if I was John Lord, I would have made a copy. <laughs> I would. I know. I know copies weren't as easy to to come by in those days, but I would have. Um, I would have made a copy. I was just reading today. This is a complete aside, but um, the Kinks when they recorded uh, Lola, yeah, he had sung Coca Cola in the lyrics. You know, just like Coca Cola. Yeah, they decided there was like a a um, copyright issue they couldn't say coca-cola so they flew him from new york to london to recur just to record singing charity cola and then flew him back like a six thousand mile round trip just to just to replace the word coca-cola in a song with the word cherry cola so that gives you an idea of the technology of the time like nowadays it'd just be like well go in the nearest recording studio and send us the wave file and we'll splice it in (laughs) You know, and same thing with this, like, you know, they they might not have had Kinko's or something back then, but I still, they had to be some way that they reproduced these scores. And I would think that there would be a copy. Well, yeah. Can you imagine John Lord just walking into a Kinko's with this big thing and just slamming it down? Could you, could you uh, run off about 800 pages? Like, I don't know. I probably have like a mimeograph machine or something to do that. <laughs> oh, it wasn't that long ago. 
it was. We had mimeographed machines in when I was in grade school. Oh shit! Did you ever have those? You you get all your tests would be that that blue paper, or the blue writing on the paper. I still remember the smell of it. Uh, I don't know. So, I, I forget more than I remember, or or remember more than I forget. I can't remember. <laughs> <laughs> See, I'm proving it right now. I don't even know what I'm talking about. <laughs> After an hour and a half of talking about the concerto, I don't remember anything either. But <laughs> so apparently, like the reviews of this were like really, some people really loved it, but a lot of like rock critics didn't know what to make of it. Classical music critics didn't know what to make of it. I'm sure they hated it. Oh, oh classical people, of course. Oh, no, oh, rather. Oh, posh, posh, tosh, or whatever. <laughs> Pish, posh, you know. Posh. Oh, sh- no, I have that. <laughs> but I get. It's getting, it, but it's it, getting late over here. Yeah. Right. Yeah. You're an hour ahead of me. Yeah. So the BBC was so so happy with the the with this that they commissioned John Lord to do the follow up, which we talked about the Gemini Suite, and he did that almost a year later. Uh, that one was not billed as Deep Purple, and it didn't have all of Deep Purple in it, like we talked about. Richie was said, "I'm out. I did that already. Not involved. Not interested." And they yeah, had Albert Lee. Fill in. Yeah, I'm sure Richie was like done. He was like, I don't like playing with orchestras. Forget you guys. Kick rocks. (laughs) Exactly. So Malcolm Arnold interviewed in 1970 said, what strikes me about Deep Purple is their tremendous musical integrity. This is so refreshing in a commercial world. I loved working with them. They're, They're thorough musicians. They're not trying to prove anything. They just like to play now and again with a symphony orchestra. They're not trying. What's that? Just now and again. This now you average every so often when I have the chance. Um, he said they're they're not trying to prove any deep philosophical problem. They just want to write music that's enjoyable, which I thought was cool. Richie Blackmore was slightly more critical. He <laughs> says, <laughs> he says, I was not into classical music then. I was very very moody and just wanted to play very very loudly and jump around a lot. I couldn't believe we were playing with orchestras. We kept getting lumbered playing with them. It started off in '68. This is my opinion as a relatively competent band with a lot to say, but saying it all at the same time as each other. In '69, we went into the classical stuff because that was John Lord's big thing to write a concerto for a group and orchestra. He was very sincere, but I didn't like playing it or respect the fact that we were doing it. The orchestra was very condescending towards us. And I didn't like playing with them. So it was one big calamity on stage. But John was happy with it, and management was happy with it because we had a press angle, which I resented very much. Of course, this is the press angle that gets them, you know, gets them all the eyes on them when they release in rock. So, it, I mean, it, it did really contribute to that. Mm-hmm. And then he says, too, that, uh, that he wanted to make the next record after this. He's like, we have to be hard rock. We have to go all out. It's going to be the heaviest thing ever. And if it doesn't work out, I'll play with orchestras for the rest of my life. And it turns out it did work out. So he was off the hook. <laughs> so, so as we talked about, they played this three more times. They also did a 1999 performance, which was pretty much the same lineup, swapping out Morse for Blackmore. Um this one was huge, though. They did uh, they did a bunch of songs. Ronnie James Dio was there. He did a great uh, version of some songs from Butterfly Ball. Um, it was just a huge event and a really, really great. Uh, you had years ago told me about that on Facebook. You said, oh, you got to check this out. And I, I remember watching that and just being really, really impressed with it because it had escaped me in the late 90s when it came out. Yeah. 
And I was interested to see that um, in November of this year, in, in Quebec, they're doing a 50th anniversary version of this with Bruce Dickinson. Oh, wow. That's cool. Yeah, it sounds, sounds really cool. I have family in Quebec. We should go check it out. <laughs> so, I don't. This doesn't say where in Quebec. Quebec is a very, very large place. But, so, there you have it. Well, to um, to uh, recap here, because this seems to, even though it's two different versions of the band, I feel like this kind of puts like the, uh, you know, it puts the cap on kind of like the beginnings of Deep Purple before we get to the good stuff. Correct. Uh, but it looks like right now, um, like I was telling you before, um, this scores pretty respectably. Respectably, uh, yes, and our um, our overall. <laughs> album I'm not. I'm not even drinking a beer. This is water. Like I know. Is, yeah. I'm, so I'm drinking. This is my. This is my moment to have a beer. I probably shouldn't be having a beer, but. Um, <laughs> but um, not um, not surprisingly. Um, well, actually, yeah, kind of a, uh, the complete episode six uh, scored the lowest with us overall, um, followed by Shades of Deep Purple, uh, Book of Taliesin. Uh, um, this this was like an even like three, um, and then Deep Purple, self titled, still scoring the highest between the uh, between the two of us. So. Um, I would say I'm not surprised that even though it was an official Deep Purple release, that the complete episode six scored the lowest. Even um, our scores were even lower than Shades and Book of Taliesin, just because it was so kind of all over the place. Right, um, and it's not a cohesive album; it's just a collection of songs. So it's it's a mixed right. bag for sure. Right, which I mean, if we were giving like fractions of points and stuff like that, I might, uh, you know, give a little bit more for. You know, oh, the the drum solo or you know Ian Gillen's vocal parts or whatever, like Richie's solo, which are definitely my favorites, and um, definitely the parts where the band and the orchestra are together, which are few and far between. But actually, it's kind of cool if you think about it because they don't do it so much that you're tired of it. It's just like you get excited for those like maybe five seconds that like in each like part where they like are playing together. I think there's there's like parts, there's like these flashes of absolute brilliance where if it's like, oh, if I was going to rate that 35-second segment, that would be a five. Yeah. I think it, it just averages out to being a three. The classical aspect of it, I don't know if enough about classical music to, to really grade it. To me, it sounds like perfectly competent. Some Some of it sounds like normal kind of apologies but boring classical music some of it sounds like really well done like movie score mm-hmm. and like you said the parts with sometimes with a band and everything is gelling together for for little segments it's just it's great yeah but overall considering the the tensions and the disastrous rehearsals and the last minute lyrics and the um, the the age of the members of Deep Purple and the the stuffy old orchestra and like just kind of how disastrous it could have been, it, it stands as a uh, really good uh, testament to like a uh, uh, cool experiment. 
as and they it, call that. It's not really, it's like not a deep purple album. You know, he yeah. did it again with Gemini Suite where he had Albert Lee filling in for Richie Blackmore. He did yeah. it with Windows, which is like Ray Fenwick filling in for <laughs> Richie Blackmore because Richie was stunned. He just didn't want to have anything to do with this sort of stuff anymore. But, you know, that's like the. But this Ma- was the first. It's like the Mark III version of it where you've got Ray Fenwick sitting in on it. And you've got Ian Pace wasn't involved in Windows, but you've got Ray Ray Fenwick and guitar. You've got Glenn Hughes on bass and vocals, David Coverdale on vocals. So you've got they've all got these great moments to them, mm-hmm. and he just kept trying that that same approach. And it, it's really interesting to listen to them as a fan. Well, well I would say that um, I I don't think that I've really heard anything past this. So like um, Gemini Suite and Windows and all that stuff, like. Um, I definitely should take a listen. And it's it's kind of weird to think that I haven't heard them after all these years. I really, I mean, I probably have maybe heard like bits and pieces or whatever, but never listened to them in their entirety. So I think it's uh, probably about time that I do. Yeah, I remember finding a copy of Gemini Suite at, oh, it was somewhere in Boston. It was like Newberry Comics or something in, in the early 90s and just being like, oh, wow, I've been listen, look, looking for this. And, you know, I listened to it a few times, but... You know, it was more from like a collector standpoint, but I'd be interested to listen to that again. And I'm very interested to listen to In Rock again because, like, like we talked about last time, I haven't heard it in a very long time. Yeah. And to to listen to that with a new, like, more critical perspective will be really interesting. Well, I think that our approach to next week's episode, which, folks, it will be In Rock finally, um, <laughs> is is that I think um, we should take a pause and just do Jesus Christ Superstar for three episodes. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, yeah, um, yeah. And the Deep Purple chronology—that's um, we could definitely mention that. But um, no, I think um, I think I think it would be the right thing to do in rock. The the honorable mention, but um, but yeah, I haven't really like listened to and examined the albums like this. So I think it definitely this approach is giving me a different perspective on the album. So I expect to be listening to in rock and li- like hearing it in a whole different way. Completely, because having listened to nothing but Mark One and Episode Six and the Concerto for like the past two months, essentially, yeah, I'm gonna. It's gonna be like hearing it for the first time. I'm just like, wow, oh my god, this is so heavy, <laughs> and just fe- trying to imagine what it must have been like to the listener in 1970 to hear this for the first time. Like we've been talking about, this must have been such a shock for someone listening to Deep Purple all these years to just be like, well short time they were out, I should say. But to been listening to this music and then here in rock must have blown your socks off. Oh yeah. So that'll be that'll be really cool to like kind of approach it like it's the first time. So that's that'll be that'll be cool. That'll be next week. We'll finally get heavy. Absolutely. Er. <laughs> so speaking of heavy, in the news, have you seen this? The Ronnie James Dio hologram tour? I'll be going this Thursday. Already? Yep. Oh, we're going to have a report from the road on the next episode. Field report on the In Rock episode. <laughs> I'm going to see the Dio hologram oh, this my. Thursday at the Worcester Palladium. Wow, he's re- they're really getting around because they just did their first show what, the other day, right? Um, uh, yeah, I think it was in Florida. Wow. Of course, um, of course, if you're doing a heavy metal show or whatever, Worcester's going to be one of your top cities to go to. 
Yeah, I'm, I'm just like, um, I don't know. Um, yeah, I don't know how they pick the venues or whatever, but there's actually reports like maybe right after the first or second show that they had canceled one of them uh, due to, um, I think it was the venue, um, something about the venue, like um, I'm paraphrasing, but I, I feel like it was like the venue couldn't support like the stage show or something like that. It had to do with the, the logistics of the stage show. So um I was like, oh boy, I said, I hope that they're not going to start to cancel shows because, you know, the thing's glitching out, but, um, <laughs> the holograms, <laughs> <laughs> but, um, something really interesting though, is, is like, whenever ads come up for this, um, it's just like all the comments are just so negative. Like, right. Right. Anybody saying anything positive. And actually it's kind of discouraging because the Worcester show, I saw on the, the, they started like advertising uh, BOGO tickets for really, it, which indicates to me that it's selling really poorly because I mean, if, like I scroll down trying to find something positive and it's like 98% of the comments are just like so negative and it's well, like, people I, like to just crap all over everything, you know, like, I mean, anytime somebody tries something new or try, oh, it's not as good as the old stuff. It's like, well, he's friggin' dead. What do you want? What do you want them to do? Like, this is. You know, this is something they're trying to do to honor him, and to I mean, I haven't seen it, so maybe it is, maybe it's not good. I don't know. But well, like, that's the whole thing is, is just like nobody's, nobody has friggin' seen it unless they saw the the one in Vak uh, in a couple of years ago, which is totally different, right? Uh, that that festival, the heavy metal festival, and um, you know, I think that um, the the comments that I see most are just like, oh, I've seen the real deal, I'm I'm good, you know, right? And, which is uh, not helpful. Like, yeah, it's like. Then fine, then be good and shut up. Like, we don't care what you have to say. Yeah, or this is just a cash grab by his widow, which is like, you know, uh, I mean, of course all these guys are doing it to, uh, get to get a paycheck, but I mean, it's just like, I feel like everybody from the from the guy that put the hologram together, because I heard a uh, recently an uh, interview with uh, Simon Wright, who's the drummer mm -hmm. um, on this, um, which basically the whole backing band is like Dio's, backing band from before he passed away yeah that's and, um, the guitarist that's the same good and i'm apologize i don't know his name but that's the same guy that we saw when we saw him at the strand right yeah craig goldie yep um actually not the bass players and i think it's um i can't remember the bass player but he's um he wasn't originally with dio i don't think but um uh, the point being is is that they they talk about how it's like it's a tribute it's a it's an honor to his music to help keep it alive it's um right you know, they're doing it with like a lot of passion and love and like, and of course, even Wendy Dio herself said like, don't, don't judge it until you've seen it, like shit all over it. But like, you know, shit all over it after you've seen it <laughs> and don't like it. Right. And um, I mean, how is it a cash grab? I mean, it's just like, they're, they're trying to, to capitalize on, you know, the, I mean, it's just like, no, uh, I, I uh, get yeah. how people would think that, but like, what are they supposed to do? Just like for, oh, forget it. Let's pretend he never existed and move on. Like, I mean. It's, yeah, but you think if somebody was going to do a cash grab, they'd do something like a little bit more popular. I mean, let's face it. I mean, it's just right. like you're going to get a lot more cash by doing some, anybody other than than Dio because he's got his loyal following. But, I mean, it's just like, um, I don't know. I just think that, um, I think that uh, you know, people should approach this as give it a chance and look at it as just any other kind of like, um, you know, theatrical presentation. Mm-hmm. Um, or, or, or a tribute or something like, I mean, uh, what, what are some of the other, um, 
uh, thing. Like, I mean, like uh, the the first thing that it makes me think of is like uh, like Elvis impersonators or like uh, the sure. Beatlemania or yep. like you know any of that kind of stuff that just pays tribute to the original, uh, you know, uh, kind of idea of like what you know, a band was about or something like that. I mean, this is new technology too. I mean, it's cool. I mean, you know, would it be cool to like see this? And if it takes off, like you could be like, yeah, I was there at the first like heavy metal, like hologram show. Yeah. I mean, it's, it is. And they said they've made a ton of improvements on the holograms. I don't even know how this stuff works. Like I hear about these happening. I know they did one with what? Tupac. There was one. Was there one with, did they do one with Zappa? Um, Maybe I think there's been a know. there's been a few of them, and I honestly I can't fathom. I'd be really interested to hear your take after seeing it, because even looking at this picture here, I don't understand what I'm looking at. Like I get it, but I don't. Yeah. I can't imagine what it actually looks like to be there. Yeah, I feel like um, I don't know. You'd have to. Yeah, I'll definitely have to let you know what it looks like, um, like in person. But I do know that say like the screens behind him and everything like that. I mean, I did usually like, I, I kind of like saw a set list, but I didn't look because I don't like to see that kind of thing. I also stay away from YouTube videos. Um, I did the same thing with the new kiss show because I want, I didn't want to see anything ahead of time. I wanted to go in fresh, but I did, I did cheat for like a couple of minutes because I was curious and it's like, there is some cool stuff and projections going on in the background, like some visual stuff. Mm -hmm. Um, which I kind of spoiled for myself, but you know, just like I said, a, a minute or two. Uh, but on video, like, I mean, you can't look at a YouTube video and judge it because it, it does like look like this. It looks like, like you're watching like a movie screen. So it's like, you can't get that 3d effect, like how it was intended to be presented theatrically unless you're there in person. Right. So, um, I just think that, you know, give it a chance. I'm excited to see it. Um, I think it'll be cool. Um, I mean, if nothing else, it's it's a it's a fun night out. Yeah, I mean, worst case scenario, listening to some Dio songs. So, yeah, yeah exactly. What's, <laughs> yeah, exactly. What's that? I mean, if you love Dio, it's just like, what are you gonna be like? This sucks. It's just like, oh, no, it doesn't. It's it's like it's Dio's vocals and his band playing Dio yeah, songs. Yeah, you're listening like, to Dio. You're seeing the members of his band. I mean, I mean, you know, unless they're all playing out of tune, what's to? <laughs> well, I mean, when we went to go see Dio those years ago, were we poking Dio? Like, no, like, like, <laughs> I mean, I get it, but like, if if Dio was still alive and this was around, you'd be like, eh, I'd rather see the real thing. But yeah. he's not. He's 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 passed on, and this is a way to honor him. So, I'm yeah. all I'm all for it. Cool. There's another. I'll uh, let you know. Let you yeah, know I, I look look forward to hearing about it. There's a there's the hologram itself, I guess. There he is in all his glory in his Knights Templar shirt or whatever that is. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. Apparently, like um, I did a little bit of research on it. And I guess that they designed the hologram like it's not actually Ronnie. It's like um, it's like an actor mimicking the movements, uh, kind of like how they would do like a um, like a screen uh, like, capture, yeah. Yeah, like animation and stuff yep. like that. And like even Wendy Dio was like, you know, they have to, she was very picky about how his eyebrows were drawn <laughs> on and stuff like that. Like even like little things or like she wanted, like she didn't want his, like his likeness to be from like the seventies. So they. It's like, like it's a, like him, what he would look like now. Um, yeah. Or closer to what he looked like, like uh, maybe, maybe in his probably like maybe I'm guessing they took it from like early two thousands, you know, something like that. Did they get Andy um, Circus to do the uh, <laughs> to do the motion capture? 
That would have been great. Oh, man. Um, he's the king of that. Uh, also in the news, there, uh, Ronnie James Dio documentary coming out. Did you hear that? They're, yes. they're starting this documentary. So Wendy Dio has got a busy year ahead of her. And I'd assume they're probably trying to get it ready for the 10-year anniversary of his passing, which will be um, yeah. about a year from now. Yeah, probably. And I, I had heard that uh, somebody was, I think it was Eddie Trunk had asked um, if they were, it was maybe it was Eddie Trunk or was something where I read uh, maybe an interview. Um, I can't remember because it's like it all bushes together in my head. But um, would would um, would she ever consider having like a Dio like biopic? Because I mean, he had a very like long and interesting life. And uh, you talk about Deep Purple doing different things. Like I mean, you see Ronnie as you do here, and you see his beginnings and everything. He was like you know wearing like a button-up suit and singing a doo-wop band yeah yeah (laughs) um, when he started out and everything and she's like no like i don't want to do that she's just like um she wants to do like like a documentary like she thinks that that would be the better way to honor him because yeah there's been so many of these biopics and i i'm probably not one to speak because i haven't really seen any of them but i'm just like eh, i'm not super excited to see any of them yeah. I I, I per, would prefer a documentary, you know what I mean? Like instead yeah. of, I don't want to say sensationalizing, but instead of like making it fit into a neat package for a movie for the dramatic element and the suspense and all that, people's lives don't work that way. And to, to, to see like something with interviews of people that knew him and interviews from him in the past, I think that would be more interesting to me anyway. Yeah, I mean, I think, and I think that that's what she's in touch with too. Uh, uh, Wendy Dio is, is that... Um you know, uh, fans like, like guys like us would rather see that than like something like the queen movie, mm-hmm. um, which, or, or the Motley Crue movie, which I mean, as cool as those things are, I mean, I saw both of them. I liked them. Um, but for somebody like Dio, I think that she knows the fan base well enough to know that we would rather see a documentary, like you said, with like excerpts of like, um, you know, interviews from him, like never before, like heard like demos and stuff like that, because I mean, she's got all that stuff and is like Mm -hmm. planning on doing stuff with it. And that's what we'd rather have than like a fictionalized version. of. Have you seen the, uh, the Jason Becker documentary? No, it's really good. You know, just kind of talking about his whole, uh, you know, his past and growing up and becoming like that would be really interesting, the incredible yeah. player. And then, you know, he gets stri- stricken with ALS and how, where that takes him. And, you know, just the fact that he didn't let that stop him making music. It's just really, it's inspiring. It's heartwarming. It's heartbreaking. It's, you know, mm. it's very interesting. And it's, you know, it's not a biopic. It's, it's him doing interviews. It's his parents. It's people that yeah. played with him. It's, you know, Marty Friedman's in there, you know, all the people that, were important with his uh, development as an artist. It's 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 great. Yeah. I it's called Not Dead Yet, I believe. Yes, I, so. I think I've heard of it. Yeah, because I, I you know I think he was supposed to die, you know, t- twenty years ago, and he's, oh god, yeah, he's still going. You know, <laughs> it's, yeah, it's very very uh, impressive. So, uh, and the last thing we got in the news is an interview with Ian Gillen, which I thought was pretty cool. Um, they were you know all of these websites or, or people try to interview. Ian Gillen and try to get, you know, like they'll always ask the same questions or be like, you know, what do you think about, would you ever get back with Richie Blackmore and play a show? You know, all these questions that they he's probably heard a thousand times, but they were asking him about new music. Like what kind, like, do you, do you have any comments on new music? Probably so could they could get a clickbait 
headline like, oh, Ian Gillen doesn't like Macklemore or whatever. I, I don't know. I don't know what the kids are listening to these days. Um, but, but instead, he, you know, he said, um, he said, no, I stare clear of that. And for good reason. When I was in my formative years, I rejected Frank Sinatra, Bing Crosby, Andy Williams, and Dean Martin. I now realize they were all great artists. But at the time, as a young man, you have to clear the decks. There's this sort of psychological vandalism that takes place for yourself. I'm in that position now. I need to step aside. My uncle was a jazz pianist, and I remember that when we did Deep Purple and Rock, he ran from the room screaming, saying, <laughs> I can't hear anything. I can't hear any instruments. I was rubbing my hands together going, great. <laughs> I had upset the previous generation and a man I highly respected. I don't think it's right to pass comment. He said, the only advice I give those is to absorb as much as you can from a wide spectrum as you can. And then he goes on to say a few more words. But I thought it was pretty pretty cool, you know, that, you know, they're probably trying to get him. You know, I, I saw an interview with, like, Moby recently where he's like, eh, no good music has come out since 1984. Uh. And it's like, oh, come on, Moby. Like, uh, what? And this was before all the recent stuff about Moby came out. So, um but, you know, like, I, I hate that kind of attitude, like, oh, they don't make good music anymore, which is just such a bunch of crap. Like, they've always made good music. They'll always make good music. You just well, got to... It's a really old man way of thinking, you know? Right, it is. And that's coming from you, who's been an old <laughs> who's been an old man since, like, seventh grade. <laughs> but it's really, it's a get off my lawn type of <laughs> mentality. Yeah, you kids. And, I mean, yeah, I admit that I, I feel the same way. I'm just like, ah, but I, I'm not saying there's no good music. It's just there's, there's no music now that interests me. But I mean, I, I could be wrong. Yeah, I mean, I could hear something that's that's. Well, there is. Now. You just got the latest. You just you just got the latest White Snake album, which came out this year. I mean, granted, it's an old band, but like you know, right. there's always new stuff coming out, and you know, like you can, you know, you can just shut your shut your mind to it and say, oh, nothing good ever comes out now. Yeah, I mean, I've heard like uh, maybe a. Uh, I mean, I admit I don't get out and hear a lot of new new original like young bands original music or whatever. But I mean, I've heard some things within the past few years. So I'm like wow, that's, that's really good. And I mean, it's just like if you go to live shows and if you like uh, just pick up new music or if you just talk to friends or meet people and they're just like, oh, have you heard of this band? Have you heard this or whatever? It's like, you'll, you'll find stuff now that's good. But I mean, to make a blanket statement, like no good music has come out since, you know, the eighties or whatever, then you're just like, I don't know, you're an idiot. <laughs> it's like, I mean, I'm, that's, I'm sorry, but you are. I mean, there's there's always good music. Of course, yeah. You know, be it old bands or, you know, young, new bands. I mean, just go to YouTube. So when this episode comes out, we will uh, be in the week of June 10th through the 16th. And that week in Deep Purple History, we've got a few landmark items. First is... June, uh, I'm sorry, June 12th was the day in 1969 was the day that Hallelujah was secretly recorded. Yeah, behind Nikki's back. <laughs> Nikki. <laughs> Every time we got it. Uh, so that's, that's great. And also... On <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> it's the pilgrim hat gets you every time. Yeah. Roger Glover with the pilgrim hat. So on June 15th, 1973, Tony Edwards, one of the managers, notifies Roger Glover that uh, Richie wants him out of the band uh, because he's already lined up Glenn Hughes to take his place. 
and he's he wants Roger out, uh, which is kind of depressing because I love Roger Glover. But I also love Glenn Hughes, so it's a very tricky thing. Then, interestingly enough, June 10th, 1982, Rainbow releases Straight Between the Eyes. And this is before Deep Purple reunites in Mark II form. Uh, and what's interesting about that is who plays bass on Straight Between the Eyes? Roger Glover. <laughs> and who produces it? Roger Glover. Roger Glover. <laughs> so uh, it's interesting. He's like, I want him out of the band. And then he's like, now I'm going to start a band and have him in the band. You know, it's this very weird relation. I, I always found it hard to understand how Roger Glover and Richie Blackburn just kept coming back together like that. I don't know. I feel like um, I feel like I kind of understand Richie a little bit because I'm the same way. Like I'll just like curse somebody <laughs> out and just be their friend again. You know, be a very difficult, you know, weird personality type. <laughs> that does that. It's like screw him, and then like you know, like a couple of years later, it's like, well, let's be in a band. <laughs> I don't know. And can you produce my album too while we're at it? <laughs> But let's let's talk about that album cover though. That's kind of one of the one of the crappiest album covers I've seen. It's yeah. Let me put it back up there. It's not the know. it's not the greatest. I don't know. I just think that anything where like anything where like, like there's an illustration with like you know a part of a guitar in it is kind of hokey you know, <laughs> because it's just kind of like a guitar crashing through somebody the in between somebody's eyes like metal. You know like <laughs> yeah. Know. This has kind of got like a a fistful of metal vibe to it although that was a few years later and a little more violent but yeah it's weird like you see the rainbow reflecting in the eyeball and person's head is apparently made of something ceramic and it's it's, it's a weird yeah it's a weird it's not it's not their best work no, album, I mean, album cover from, wise yeah, i can't i mean I, if you go from like uh the the album artwork to like rainbow rising to this it's just like you see like even rainbow it's just a like black like like Times New Roman font or something. It's like, what the hell? Who decided on that? You know, Richie's just like, let the art department figure it out. I don't know. Yeah, exactly. While I wear my Abe Lincoln hat or whatever it is. Pilgrim hat. Oh, man. Wait, I don't think he was wearing the Pilgrim hat in the 80s. Um, hmm. That's a good no, question. Was he? No, I think he, I, no, I think he gave it up for the, yeah, I think since the '80s, I think he might have been he might have been wearing a. I think he's. I, I'm suspicious that he might be wearing a wig because his hair is the same now as it was then. <laughs> he's got kind of like the Paul McCartney syndrome. Well, Paul McCartney recently finally allowed his hair to have a little gray in it, <laughs> even though it's probably 100% gray at this point. He's like 75 or whatever. Um, but yeah, like he was like dying at like 100% like brown, like up until like just a couple years ago. It's like you're not fooling anybody, buddy. Uh, good for him. Yeah, same same with Travolta. Did you see that recently? He embraced his baldness. Oh yeah, he shaved his head. Oh, well, I, did you see like a picture with him with Kiss? Yeah, he was That's like how I saw it because he was um what, what the hell was he singing? I, I, were they singing the Grease soundtrack together or something? I can't remember. <laughs> Might have been something weird. Um, they, they were doing, yeah, they were doing something weird together, and I saw that, and then I went down this John Travolta rabbit hole, and I was just like, oh man, look at that! And you know what? I get it. Like, has nothing to do with the podcast, but props, props to him for like just embracing like the fact that he's a friggin' bald mofo. <laughs> you know, it looks much better on him than all those like, yeah. 
wigs and the hair plugs or whatever the hell he was doing before. Doesn't doesn't quite balance out the whole Scientology aspect, but well, that's <laughs> that's a discussion for another day. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, for as far as a look, it's a much better look. Mm-hmm. So I've got a I've got a treat for you for our deep purple deep track of the day. I feel like we need we should probably have jingles for these, huh? It's the deep purple deep track or something. Deep but, uh, purple deep track. There you go. We'll have to do some like four part harmonies. So <laughs> today's today's deep track is coming to you. It's a it's a. A band called Fancy. <laughs> well, when you say it like that, who's that over on the end, Lemmy? Uh, that over on the end is most likely... On um, the right? On the right? Yeah. That's most likely um, Les Binks. Oh. I believe. <laughs> so this is a band called Fancy. This song is called Touch Me. Mm. <laughs> and who is in this band? So Les Binks is in this band, as we know from Judas Priest, the early Judas Priest recordings. And he was also prominently featured in the Wizards Convention. The vocals are by Helen Kant, who is a former penthouse model. So she was in this band, I guess, for the recording, but then they realized, well, we can kind of make her sound good in the studio, but we're going on the road, and they replaced her with Annie Cavanaugh, who was uh, a singer who performed actually live with Jesus Christ Superstar. She was on the road with Jesus Christ Superstar. On bass, we've got Mo Foster, also of Wizards Convention and Butterfly Ball fame. Cool. And then on guitar on the left, do you recognize him? See that puffy hair? That is Mr. Ray Fenwick. Okay. From, <laughs> from Ian Gillen Band. He was the guitarist on John Lord's Windows, as we talked about earlier. And then he was also in the Spencer Davis group, who are great. That's one of Eddie Harden's previous, uh, previous outings. So kind of an interesting band here. Yeah, that is a uh, that is kind of a a very unique lineup. Out of some, you know, a few different uh, tangentially related. Les Bink played on Wit Wizards Convention with John Lord and all them, and uh, Mo Foster. Mo Foster is is credited as being in the Butterfly Ball, doing the finger snaps. <laughs> <laughs> so that's a very. <laughs> But I, he had to have been doing something else, right? They wouldn't have just brought him in just for that. Unless he was just like, maybe he was like, dropped somebody off to the studio that day. Well, they like, just uh, he yeah. like he gave Mickey Lee Soul a ride to the studio, and he's like, <laughs> he's like, hey, hey, Mo, we need uh, we need one more set of finger snaps. All right, I don't even remember any finger snaps on the Butterfly Ball, but. Or they just looked at his hand and they're just like, those are the fattest fingers I've seen. Let me hear you snap, kid. You know? I think you're going to wow. go places. <laughs> you're going to go places with them with them sausage links. <laughs> um, was, um, did Old Blind Mole have finger snaps on it? 
Oh, you're right. Oh, blind. That must have been it. He must. Yeah, that those are the sweet sausage fingers of Mo Foster. <laughs> and I have no idea if he has fat fingers. I'm just wondering what makes somebody's fingers like desirable to use them for snapping. I wonder if they just he he came in the studio and they they caught like they just saw his fingers. Oh, wait, hey, take those things out for a second. <laughs> I just, just, just on on sight, they knew. Oh, this is gonna be gold. Give those things a, give those puppies a snap for me. Take those puppies for a spin. <laughs> oh, oh well. <laughs> on that note, I think we should we should call it quits for, oh, for episode seven, concerto for group and orchestra. It's been a a blast listening to that again with you and. Um, yeah, it, it was, and I, I look forward to next week when we get to start on the, the, the big one. Yeah, the big one. In rock. In rock. Can't wait. Can't wait. It's going to be great. Well, until uh, next week then, we'll talk to you later. Ciao. Thank you for listening to the Deep Purple Podcast. If you like what you hear and would like more episodes in the future, please donate on Patreon to support the show. You can also give us a rating on iTunes to help new people discover the show. You can follow us on YouTube, Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook for show updates. See deeppurplepodcast.com for more details. Thank you for listening. Yeah, you started off with hola and you ended with chow. Yeah, I started off with Spanish and I ended on some Italian. <laughs> <laughs>